You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Recently, Interference Archive put together an exhibition called Fair Food Nation about the intersection of local, national, and global food movements and activism. We'll hear from the curators of Fair Food Nation later in the episode. First, we're talking to someone who's intimately involved in the struggle for food justice in New York. My name is Kiana Mickey. I'm the director of Just Food. Um, I have gone. Uh, I started in um, community activism and food justice work. Wow, I think close to eight years now. My first foray was volunteering in my neighborhood. I had um, was a fairly new um, resident of Harlem, and had just started to um, get into yoga, which led to kind of thinking a little bit more about my personal food and what I was bringing home to my son. And found a group in Harlem that was working on issues of food and volunteered. And they had an opportunity to send somebody to a community advocacy training course at Just Food. You know, there's different ways to engage. There's different ways to get involved and I was more, um, what led, what, what spoke to me a little bit more was policy and community engagement um, as opposed to growing. And I just started to focus a little bit more into that. And one, you know, thing led to another. Um, I was able to coordinate the group and, and did the subcommittee for community organizing. People started asking me to speak and share my personal story of being a community advocate and being a mom and, you know, how I connected food to my home. And then as I started to learn more folks in the work, um, I started to learn about sustainability and sustainable practices and policies and things we wanted to fight for to see the food that we wanted. And um, as you can hear, there's not a lot of justice in that work. And I think at the time it was just... um, primarily white-led and like more foodie and academic people that were kind of leading that work and in that space. Um, I started to see more and more folks of color, and I think it was then I started to connect a little bit more to what other people did in the work in terms of connecting to food and justice. So I think I was already a little bit deeper into um, food policy before I started making those connections. And then really when I saw how it connects, what the injustice is and how racism, you know, permeates through all our issues and through all our systems, it really started to make a connection to me and the work that I wanted to do on food. So you mentioned um, learning about the way racism relates to food systems in New York. Could you talk a little more about that? You know, racism is something that I've always faced as a person of color, um, being a woman of color um, growing up in New York, and there was really no difference even in the landscape of food. You know, racism affects who's growing what food, where they're growing it, who gets subsidies, who doesn't, who gets benefits, even who gets to know that those opportunities exist at all, um, where equipment is, where equipment isn't. Um, and I think also in policies, what I started to learn um, more is like the historic inequities that were built into those policies where you had people um, who were known white supremacists that were also agriculture representatives and senators and congressmen and were building policies to keep folks of color off land to minimize you know farm um, minimize land ownership of black farmers minimize um, farming as a occupation for black and brown people and now you know and over time it became less about 
ownership. And now we've seen these like major decreases of um, land owned by black farmers versus land now. Um, and also what is the, that different layer between farm and farm worker? I think, you know, for me, that's a lot of that can be seen on a federal level. And also what I started to do is really listen to some of the elders in the work that have been doing food justice work, food sovereignty work here in our communities, so like the five boroughs of New York City, um, and really kind of making those connections to that too. So there were you know, times where we've had neighborhoods that were neglected, um, run down purposely. You know, businesses were systemically taken out. Um, neighborhoods, you know, dramatically shifted, and people were left with urban blight and abandoned buildings, burned buildings, abandoned lots, and started to build resiliency within themselves and grow in those spaces. And when there was nothing else to grow and feeding each other when there was very little options around. And, you know, that is racism in itself. That's, you know, a form of redlining of housing. You know, there's some resilience there in trying to build something for yourself. But now these same communities that were left to be despaired are now desired and gentrifying. And what became things of resilience are now reasons why people want to come into those communities and take the whole neighborhood over. Um, so I think for me, I started to see very clearly how much racism can really affect urban agriculture as well as rural agriculture. And it's not just in policies, but it's also just in, um, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood and block by block and who gets certain permits and who doesn't. Or now what we're a lot of our partners are facing or community gardens or, you know, or, or, or lands that they're now fighting against developers or where folks are being pitted against affordable housing advocates in order to fight about this land where we're actually all community folks that should be building solidarity as opposed to be pitted against each other. Can you describe some of the work that Just Food is doing and how that responds to the circumstances? Um, so CSA was Community Supported Agriculture, was one of those models that seemed to fit well in the New York City landscape to connect farmers to food. And that's really like the cornerstone of Just Food's work. Those connections to farms and food and community started to lead towards opportunities to build um, city farms and urban garden and train people in urban agriculture. Um, so I think those are really kind of some of the roots of food justice in the just food work. For instance, there are a lot of farmers markets and a lot of farmer market networks in New York City now. There was a time there was very few. Ours are unique that ours are community run. So we offer trainings for folks in their own communities that want to start farmers markets. So they want to have a say on the models that are feeding their folks, as well as the vendors that, um, that they want to work with and give them the opportunities to build those relationships and sustain them themselves. Um, CSAs are continuing to um, to thrive while still kind of facing a lot of competition because the landscape has definitely changed over the past 20 years. And a way that we try to um, incorporate or impart food justice or increase food justice in a CSA model is helping uh, CSA groups uh, be trained to accept 
EBT or food stamps or food stamps. So community members that are low income and are eligible for food stamps can also use their SNAP dollars or their SNAP incentives at the CSA. Um, and we also have another model that um, connects farmers to food pantries, so they're able to bring their fresh seasonal food during the summer season um, and fall to um, uh, pantry clients, so they're able to get fresh items in addition to the self-stable items. Can you talk a little more about the policy and advocacy work? Our policy and advocacy work has always kind of been embedded in a lot of what we have done, and sometimes we've taken the, the forefront on issues or worked with other organizations to lead change in um, policy. Um, for instance, in, um, in the past, there, um, there was a time when CESA would not accept SNAP. Um, and we were one of the groups that kind of helped push for that policy measure. It's a federal measure. With a CSA member, what they were able to do is figure out a policy that enabled them to still be a part of the model, but not put too much um, money up in advance since um, they're not only food insecure, but you know, um, they're money because you're kind of accepting the risk and reward of that bounty. Going back to what you said about the farmer's markets, could yeah. you talk about why it is important for something like a farmer's market to be uh, led by the community? I think for me, there's a few reasons why farmers markets are so vital and so important to be uh, in diverse communities, but also in particular community led. I think for a lot of our families, um, you know, I personally am a CSA member and I think CSA is great, but it may not necessarily be um, the model itself may not work for all families and all um, folks. So at least with a farmer's market, you have that option in your community to buy as much as you want when you want. You still yet still have that opportunity to have that direct relationship with those vendors and with those farmers. What makes it really important about being community led farmers markets is our community run markets are for and by the people. It is what the community or community members ask for. We always require as part of the training to do community asset mapping and to have at least a small group of folks that are going to do this project. So that's one, me helping them support the choice of bringing farmer's markets or a model like a farmer's market into their neighborhood. And also for them to know to, to minimize the barriers that kind of keep folks of color and low-income folks away from maybe dealing with bureaucracies. What do you see as being really necessary right now in order to increase food justice in New York? Hmm. Wow, okay. Do we have all night? Um, there's so many different things. Um, one thing I try to tell people more and more is, yes, it's great to have a food job, but we all can bring justice into our work. And I think if we all can really see and take that step back to really notice how social justice and, and equity intersects in our lives, in our food, in our work, you actually are a part of food justice. You can do it by supporting small businesses and local farms and community models that are bringing healthy food into their community. So not just what we buy, say, in supermarkets or different models like that, but what do we eat when we go out to restaurants? What does, you know, is the labor invisible? Is the, the sourcing invisible? You can do it by growing. You could do it by supporting your local community garden. You can do it by going to your local community board meeting and knowing what rezoning plans are happening and, and pushing back on that. You know, to me, that 
Even if it doesn't directly seem like it relates to food, it does. Food connects to housing, to life, to water, to land. I am Jen Hoyer. I'm Maggie Schreiner. Jen and Maggie were the curators of Fair Food Nation. So the Ace Hotel reached out to us and they let us know that they were hosting the Food Book Fair. And they were really interested in using their gallery space at the same time to highlight issues related to food. We sort of narrowed our focus to talk about the um, relationship between food and labor Partially, we did this because it's a strength of the collections at Interference, which I think, you know, makes a lot of sense. I was also really excited to learn when we were preparing for this exhibition um, and we we talked with Ben over at the hotel about how we really thought the focus was going to be labor. And he mentioned that on uh, the Day Without Immigrants, that action actually shut down their oyster bar at the hotel. And for me, that was um, really amazing to learn because it made me realize, oh, we're putting this in a space where there are workers there who will be on the same page with this. And I think for us, it was an opportunity to put these materials talking about the intersections of food and labor and often quite radical understandings of the role that food and labor play in our movements um, in a space like the Ace Hotel. Uh, So we wanted to sort of make the connection between historical movements around food, um, like the United Farm Workers organizing um, grape pickers or um, Zapatistas organizing for uh, food sovereignty um, or the Black Panthers free lunch program to take those and put them in the context of, you know, a corporate commercial hotel, which also has restaurant workers in it. I asked Jen and Maggie to show me some of the materials from the show. So the first thing I pulled out is the poster that we used on the promo material for the exhibition. And partially we made that decision because it's aesthetically very strong, um, but it also in many ways um, sort of grounds our whole exhibition. So it's a poster that has two wine bottles one is like upright and one is upside down and the upright one says buy and it has a number of different um, wine labels um, that have good labor practices and then on the other side there's the upside upside down wine bottle that says boycott and has all the wine producers um, that have a labor action happening against them so you're supposed to boycott in solidarity with the farm workers so the United Farm Workers really was a core piece of our exhibition. Uh, another poster that I will just mention is a poster from the Angolan Liberation Movement, and it shows workers uh, harvesting coffee beans or like their hands holding the coffee beans, and it just um, mentions, you know, that the the coffee harvest is powered by the people and i thought that that was 
you know, as, as an artifact from the 1970s, from this era of all of these liberation movements across Africa. Uh, it was an amazing reminder that part of that liberation struggle was to be self-sufficient and to produce uh, food for a self-determined country. Um, so part of every battle for independence was also this um, this struggle to create the infrastructure we also had material in the show uh, that represented restaurant workers organizing, not just um, farm workers. Um, so we had a couple copies of the zine Dishwasher, uh, which, you know, I would say in zine circles is one of the more famous zines. And it talks about both the experiences of the author working as a dishwasher across the United States and also the experiences of other people who work as dishwashers in restaurants. So we had a fold open about the highlights of Woody Guthrie's dishwashing career. Labor and food doesn't just happen in the fields or on the farms. It happens through the process of planting, harvesting, shipping, preparing, packaging, and serving. So it's a long process and there's many points of labor that that happens to get um, a plate of food on the table at a restaurant or at your home. Maggie also mentioned that um, some of the material we included was uh, related to the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program. And um, so the, the newspaper that we included had an article about the launch of that program in L.A. And that program was incredible. It was it was a huge impetus for similar programs. Initially, similar programs for providing free food and extending also to free healthcare uh, by other groups uh, like the Young Lords. It also eventually influenced the government to produ- to provide free breakfasts and free lunches in schools. And I don't think people realize today that the root of those free breakfast programs in schools came from the Black Panthers. I don't think the Black Panthers get credit for that. And uh, I think that's something that we need to draw a lot of attention to. And at the same time, I think it's really important now for people to stop and take a minute. And folks who might never have thought about the Black Panthers or given them credit for anything great need to um, take a moment to acknowledge that a lot of social good uh, has happened because groups like that just started a program that they thought was important for giving people the quality of life they deserve. Another thing that we included is a little brochure from Milk Not Jails, which is a current organization based in New York State um, that makes connections between agricultural workers, the expansion of the prison industrial complex in upstate New York, and how New Yorkers can interrupt that relationship. Um, So it talks about how... In upstate New York, there's a lot of political incentive for prison expansion because it provides jobs to places that are in many cases depressed rural communities. And so Milk Not Jails supports dairy farmers that create jobs that aren't based on the prison industrial complex. So they support agricultural workers and dairy farmers, both through like the direct sale of milk from these farms um, to people in New York. And in return um, for doing that, the dairy workers advocate within their communities 
against prison expansion. So they're sort of creating um, the connection between how food and labor in communities and the imprisoned industrial complex in New York State are very intertwined. And so we included both a brochure from Milk Not Jails, sort of going through this history, um, and also a napkin from one of their ice cream socials where you can go get an ice cream cone and learn about dairy farming and the prison system. This is just one example of the way food production is related to other social movements. And I think another thing we tried to do in this show was think of labor in the broadest possible understanding of what labor could mean. While the union struggles focused on the UFW was sort of a core component of this show, um, we did include different types of labor and labor struggles and how those intersect with our movement work. So I think the Black Panther Party is a really good example of that, that it's not strictly a union issue, but it does speak to the role that food and labor and the labor of creating food for our communities and our movements play in like a broader liberation struggle. And I think that's also nodded at both in the Zapatista poster and in the Angola Coffee Harvest poster that by claiming our labor in the food production system, we are able to create alternative structures to capitalist modes of food production and distribution, and that that is one piece of our liberation. We can't really feed our minds and we can't really feed our, our struggle unless we're also feeding ourselves. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered, and we rely on donations to keep us up and running. To support what we do, just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. Thanks for listening.